0: Thanks for listening to the Standing Together Ministry Podcast. Our desire is to create a multi-generational conversation in the independent Baptist movement while standing together for truth. The following is a teaching portion from the first ever Standing Together Ministry Summit in September of 2018. We would love to see you at the next summit on April 1st and 2nd at Franklin Road Baptist Church of Murfreesboro, Tennessee. You can learn more and register at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Now, prepare to grow as you listen to this episode of the Standing Together Ministry Podcast.
1: Both sides, and then I went to Bob Jones University. You can't do more eclectic than that. And uh, so uh, I got to be around uh, a lot of, uh, of men and gained so much from that. And, uh, and now I is one. And uh, uh, by the way, you know us older preachers—we're still young preachers at heart. We just have bodies that don't work as well, you know. It's, uh, that's really all the difference. Maybe a little bit more experience. I remember my father how he would listen and very much gain from young men. And uh, it was uh, uh, always uh, very instructive to me how he would take every young man that came across his path very seriously. And uh, so this is this is real Christianity, and I'm very thankful that this has been set up, and it certainly is a privilege for me to be uh, able to be in this role here today. I was thinking, how in the world did I get the topic of an overview of 20 and 21st century fundamentalism? I mean, that is quite the topic. It reminds me of a story I saw some years back in Country Magazine. Uh, that's centered in Greendale, Wisconsin, and so my wife would go to the warehouse sales, and so we have country magazines out of our, uh, all over the place, and so I was reading one one time about a story of a very wealthy farmer who had massive buildings, it was a corporate farm, and all of a sudden a fire broke out in the hay barn and was threatening millions of dollars worth of buildings, and so it went from a one alarm, two alarm, three alarm, four alarm, and in comes uh, not only the city fireman but this uh old country uh fire engine an old antique and they they just weren't getting anywhere with this fire he comes in uh the few men they were all farmers and they went right past the fire line right into the barn you saw the water coming out uh, from within and what the city firemen couldn't do they did in just a couple of minutes well everybody cheered they come out they're all blackened up you know and real heroes, and the owner comes rushing up, and right there he gets out his checkbook and writes $5,000 for the fire department, and the old chief said, oh, thank you, he said, we've been needing to get breaks on old Betsy for a long time. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like, somewhat, somehow, I don't know what happened, but here I am, so join with me, we're going to do a flyover that I trust will at least give you some thinking and perspective here today on where... Where have we come from? Why are we here? What are some of the things that we can learn from the past? Now, ultimately, folks, when we use the term fundamentalism, we are talking about New Testament Christianity. That's our burden. We are gathered here together, as every gathering of pastors has been throughout history, because we love the Lord Jesus. He's the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the head of the church. We are his body. It doesn't matter what we think. It doesn't matter what our abilities are. We're gathered together to find out what is authentic New Testament Christianity. And so as we look at any history, folks, we've got to get the human equation out and do a biblical perspective on is this or is this not truly the kind of Christianity that honors the Lord and shows forth his power uh, in the working of those churches. I think of the New Testament as you read in First Thessalonians 1, 5, for our gospel came not unto you only uh, in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Ghost and in much assurance as you know what manner of men we were among you for your sakes. And ye became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Ghost, so that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and the And it goes on to say how ye turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. I'm telling you, in that first century, wherever they went, when Christ showed up, through those apostles, cities were changed. That's the kind of Christianity I'm interested in. I'm interested in a Christianity that shows the power of my risen Lord who sits in authority and a glorified body at the right hand of the of the throne of God, and he, we need to just be jealous for his name's sake, doesn't matter what America is today, we have a king that is ready to work, and we've got to figure out what is it that's holding back his working in our lives. I'm telling you, New Testament Christianity changed the world, Titus 2.11, in chapter 1, Paul says, Crete, the Cretans are slow bellies, and he goes on, not a real pretty picture of the culture. And then he says in uh, chapter 2, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, training us, that, uh, that denying ungodliness, saying no to ungodliness, and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world or age. That's the kind of Christianity I want to live. That's the kind of Christianity I want to see my people live. And I'm telling you, folks, we're not right there yet. I mean, we need a move of God in America. Now, it's happening around the world, but why not here? There are missionaries that are seeing mighty moves of God come back to America, and they get swelched. They'll tell you that one after the other. Men that are in charge of great movements, there is something about our spirit. So what can we learn from our history? Well, as you look at church history of this century, you have to just say a word about the previous one, the 1800s. You see, God throughout history has always had to purify his church. And even before you look at the 1800s, what happened to New Testament Christianity in the fourth century? It got combined with the world, the system, the Roman Catholic Church thousand years of darkness now there were many many nonconformists and mighty moves of god but not a problem not a pretty picture and then the reform movement praise the lord for justification by faith but they did not throw off the wrong the the wrong view of the church and you still had state churches you still had the corruption of the idea of bringing in the kingdom now that just uh, integrated the culture with the church and and that actually spawned what we know today as religious liberalism out of Germany and other places. And then, of course, you had humanistic philosophies that came in in the 1800s that uh, blended the age of reason, rationalism, existentialism, and other philosophies with Christianity. And that's really religious uh, religi- uh, liberalism. And, of course, now our culture, Western culture, is post-Christian neo-pagan, not Judeo-Christian. So I have to say that as a background. But you know, God throughout history has always worked to purge his church. We call it revival. Revival is simply a life again. Whose life again? Christ's life again. You look at the first four uh, decades of the 1800s. We call it the second great awakening. Can you imagine a nationwide revival for 40 years? That's why we are still a quote-unquote Christian nation. Then God was gracious, the prayer revival, the third great awakening, and then the Civil War was devastating. But then God came back and worked through the mighty evangelistic campaigns and revival meetings in the latter part of the 1800s. But liberalism was coming in, and there were great awakenings but also great loss during that time to combat that. You had in England the Keswick Conference. You had the Northfield Conference in, in America. You had the Niagara Conference that dealt with the right uh, position on the church and especially prophetic truth and all of a sudden things shaped up for the 1900s. So that's where we are. And I would like to say bottom line as we look at the 20th century it's all about faith being undermined. Folks, we serve a powerful God. The word of God is authoritative and completely true. God's still doing miracles. God can do the impossible. But question marks started coming in seriously into every denomination, but I'm only going to look at the Baptists in particular here as we look at the 20th century. And it's it, so it began to spawn a secular and humanistic culture that unfortunately 20th century fundamentalism did not, was not able to overcome. Now you'll see there in your notes, I'm going to do, I will use some of them, they're there for your reference, but I want you to notice the thesis here. Biblical Christianity has been marked by the advance of Christ's body through the Holy Spirit's supernatural working. Folks, it's a miracle when Christianity goes forward. It never is culturally acceptable. It is always counterculture. It was completely counterculture in the New Testament. And so God moves it forward through His presence, through His working and genuine revival in answer to prayer and to the obedience of God's people. However, each advance has been met, as we look at, by subtle opposition of Satan, endeavoring to undermine genuine faith. And here's my proposal what we need in this generation is a clear understanding of the tactics of the evil one, what he did in the last century, and what he's doing today. And you young men are going to have to wrestle with it today. But start with the Bible. I know that sounds so simple. We want the purest form of New Testament Christianity possible. And I'm telling you, there are all kinds of tactics going on, as there has been throughout, to cause us to not depend upon God like we should. All right, now, looking back to the 1900s, there are three times that God was good to us. We don't normally think of it this way, but there were three revivals that would be called national revivals in the 20th century. The first one was the the largest one and that was in 1904 to 1910. All of you are familiar with the Welsh Revival, but the Welsh Revival actually started in America. And it was some Welsh men and preachers went back to their country because the great prayer meetings were here in America starting in 1899 to about 1903 And then God just broke forth in the country of Wales. Then it came back to the United States, and honestly, for six years, this country and 60 other countries were swept with the power of God. James Stewart, who was deeply affected by that and became a great revivalist, said the revival and effects which followed in his wake could not be kept local. It was like a prairie fire. But what happened? May not realize it, but the Northern Baptist Convention didn't start till 1907 1908. I did not know that myself. The Southern Baptist Convention started in 1843. I always thought they split at the Civil War. You know, it made sense. Not so. The Southern Baptist, I'm sure that was part of it, but the Southern Baptist wanted what I consider a non-Baptistic denomination. Yeah, right. The Northern Baptists said, no, we have our missions organizations, we have other things, we'll meet once a year in what they call their anniversary get-together, but we're not having a denomination. Isn't that interesting? The Southern Baptists, since 1843, have been a lock together, almost creating a culture of Christianity in the South, and it's very interesting to study it. But the Northern Baptists did not do that, but they finally did. And if you study the Northern Baptists, which had great influence in America, it was not fundamentalists that started it. It it was the progressives that started it. And when we say progressive, we're talking progressive. We're talking straight out religious liberalism, masked as some type of Orthodox Christianity and uh, Shaler Matthews you could go on with the names of the men that started the Northern Baptist now when was the revival 1904 1910 what happened during the middle of it the combination of fundamentalism with liberalism the fundamentalists were part of it and compromise started early And by 1910, and then with the coming on of World War I, Satan got us. And it was one battle after another. But our forefathers, folks, our Baptist forefathers up north stayed in. And by the way, the Southern brethren were in very much into the Southern Baptists, who were not quite as liberal, but they had quite a bit, which I'll talk about, and so there was a spirit, and I want you to get this, of compromise. It was more important to be part of the organization than to honor Jesus Christ completely. That was really what the bottom line. You, As you read through it, which I did, I was really stirred by it. And so you have genuine fundamentalists compromising with liberalism. The second great awakening in the 20th century was in the late 1940s after World War II uh, came and was gone. And through the early 1950s, you had youth movements that uh, came together finally with Youth for Christ, which we're familiar with. And uh, there were other things that were going on. A number of great evangelists were having tremendous meetings. And in the late 1940s, it was not unusual to have massive convention centers packed with God's with people and people getting saved. And God began to stir. The country had been through a lot. And God was raising up leaders. And then on New Year's Eve, 1949, and then it became New Year's Day, 1950, after a lot of prayer in Mechanics Hall of Boston, God came down. The place was packed. The Boston Globe, New York Times said, God has come. So we don't even know about this. The man that, was, that spoke was Billy Graham. He was more surprised than anybody because he just came and spoke. But New England pastors, there was a New England Revival Association that for about 20 years had been praying for God to work, and God answered their prayers. And God came upon evangelists like Jimmy Johnson, Jack Shuler, uh, John R. Rice, who was very key, Jack Wordson, Percy Crawford, Fred Brown, Marv Rosell. Marv Rosell's son said the mercy drops of revival have been falling throughout the 1940s, largely as a result of the ministry of organizations such as Youth for Christ. But 1949 and 1950 brought a virtual downpour of spiritual awakening, and that revival spread. By the way, genuine revival spreads. If you want to know something that's real, It doesn't just stick with one local church, brother. One light uh, fire lights another fire. And I tell you, let's get a bigger picture than just our local churches. When we pray about revival, Lord, if we can be part of lighting the fire, do it. But, Lord, it's not about our church being successful. God's not going to answer that prayer. It's about we need to see you move today. You need to be honored, and that needs to be our heart cry. Well... Unfortunately, some of the men that were part of that revival movement got caught up in what was happening. By this time, fundamentalism and the culture were now no longer together. We had a very strong Bible culture coming out of the second great awakening and the move of God in the late 1800s. But after World War I, after World War II now secularism, humanism, and the effect of liberalism in the Northern Baptist Convention and in the other denominations had produced a new culture. And so there began to be a synthesis endeavoring to get respectability with liberals and with the secular culture. And when it came to this revival, they substituted human means for fasting and prayer and depending solely upon God. Now that's a strong that's a strong statement, but if you'll study it I'm I'm speaking accurately. That's what happened. And uh, out of that came the National Association of Evangelicals late 1940s. Men like John Rice, Bob Jones Sr., Monroe Parker were part of it initially, but then could not stay in it because it was developing a new philosophy of endeavoring to reach the culture by contextualizing with the culture, and they began to realize they had now taken out the, the supernatural working of God to transform the culture. And men that were discerning began to see that happening. And so the, you now had a division between what we call New Evangelicalism and present-day fundamentalism. Now, what's so interesting here there was no doubt that God blessed America, 1946, 7, 8, 9, 50, 51, 52, 53. But then, ecumenical evangelism substituted for unapologetic proclamation of God's word. And in the 1970s, many of you may have heard of the Saskatoon Canadian Revival mcleod mcleod well it's very interesting when he gives the account of that mighty working of god western canada is still affected by that he tells about the fact that sherwin wood who was the editor of decision magazine and had been with billy graham most of the time since the 1950s came leonard ravenhill and told him about this revival that was going on and so he comes and he was there actually in Manitoba, when uh, Winnipeg, when there was a mighty outpouring of God's spirit. He's sitting about three rows back in the, this great meeting, and there was such a flood of people just coming before God. It was just a wonderful outpouring of God's spirit. So um, they had to ask him to move out of some of those first pews, and Brother McLeod came back, and with tears, Sherwin Wood said, I've been involved with Billy Graham in the largest sense of evangelism. I've never seen revival. This is revival. Now that's very instructive. Billy Graham substituted mass evangelism for the outpouring of God's spirit. Please take note of that. That's one of the most important things I'm going to tell you. In fact, Sherwin Wood eventually wrote a book called Afterglow, talking about the revival and what it did for him. And he came into revival. His wife, who had real needs, came into revival. And God changed their lives. But the Billy Graham Association did not. Thank God for all that was done. But there was a total different spirit in regard to associations and the proclamation of God's word that I think just killed the move of God of the late 1940s. May I say this, if those evangelists had stuck with what got them there, we'd be a different country today. I think God was ready to do a work. I think God had anointed a Billy Graham and some of these other names and others that I can mention. But I'm telling you, gentlemen and ladies, our humanness is a real problem. And it's easy for us to get in the way before we get too um, critical. Then... You had uh, the Conservative Baptist Association, which was formed about with the fundamentalists that had stayed in the Northern Baptist Convention, and uh, they uh, imbibed pretty quickly. You had good men like Cedarholm, and uh, you had uh, my father was now in it. He had moved north, and uh, a number of others had been part uh, of that and, uh, and it wasn't long before there was a big split in the CBA and I just mentioned that because there's so many facets to this. As a little boy, I went with my dad and I remember distinctly the difference between the separatists and the progressives of the CBA movement. And I'm telling you, there's a lot of disinformation about the early fundamentalists. All I can say is I remember being in rooms where they wept and asked God for his power. I remember being treated uh, in a wonderful way by those men. And, uh, and so uh, the, the, this battle continued on. And so the New Evangelical Movement went into full-blown gear. Again, I'm being very just sketchy on all of this. Then the 1960s and 70s spawned another revival movement. What was that? Independent Baptist fun, uh, Fundamentalists. Independent Fundamental Baptists. What had happened is these men had come out these men had left the CBA. They had come out of the Southern Baptist Convention. They, were, they had lost everything. They were believing God. Why? Because they wanted more than anything else to see God work. Amen. And they were just grieved at the compromise. My father was one of those. First the Southern Baptist, then the conservative Baptist. Rick Flanders, who probably is the best historian on this last century, said the cause of this revival movement included a strong new emphasis on personal evangelism gatherings of preachers to emphasize the reaching of entire cities or communities with the gospel and a new faith in distinctly revival-oriented teachings. Remember, that's our thesis. When we want to see God work, that's when God purifies His church, such as the ministry of the Spirit, the truth about prevailing prayer, and the vital importance of absolute surrender to God. And John R. Rice, in many ways, provided the vigorous voice for this revival movement. And so the combination, get this, of separatism and a heart for revival brought a boom and the only mega churches in America in the early 70s were fundamental churches. I wouldn't call this the purest of revivals, but I'm telling you it was a real deal. 1968 I went with my dad to Cincinnati to the biggest hall there in Cincinnati, 4,000 Preachers at that meeting from every group of fundamentalists in America. I'm telling you, I was thrilled to be a fundamentalist. It was exciting. These men had the power of God upon them. It was very, very uh, moving for me. Now I give you my own perspective. What happened? Well, unfortunately, with the lack of long-term revival after the other times, secularism was taking hold. We had the '60s. We had the Vietnam War. Fundamentalists became really good at techniques on how to build their churches. Sort of reminds you of Billy Graham with his techniques for for uh, uh, ecumenical evangelism. Again, let's not be too hard on these people in the past. It's it's happened right within our own movement, and uh, and so. There began to be more and more of a man-centered, there was a heady, headiness. I remember going to all kinds of seminars. I remember going to all these plush hotels and telling you how to do it and how how you build your churches. And I was just in my first few years of ministry, and something just bothered me. See, I had a godly grandmother who knew how to pray and see the power of God. I had a father that knew God. And this didn't seem right. And I gotta tell you, about four years in, I about left fundamentalism. I said, I don't really wanna do much, be a part of this. Um, I was really concerned. Uh, I was seeing very little divine and an awful lot of man. Not good, as young men, it's very easy for us to be overly critical, but I, I think in some ways I was right saw little kingdoms developing. It just wasn't the Christianity that I saw when I, was, when I was growing up. And so I was really disturbed about it. And I had been right through the middle of the Jones-Rice split. I'll never forget. My junior year, I was a hall leader, and I was given little booklets to, to put on every bed of uh, dorm men there at, at BJ. And uh, I just wept. Uh, I said, I can't do it. I called my dad. I said, I can't do it. He said, son, you're under authority. You're not responsible for what you do. You obey and don't say a word about it. But he said, I agree with you. (laughs) uh, So anyway, I I can quote him now. He's been 20 years with the Lord, so I won't get him in trouble. But uh, uh, anyway, uh, I want to tell you with tears, I put those books out. I sat in the blue room and heard Dr. Bob talking with my dad. And I thank God for Dr. Baugh. There's a lot of super things that he did. But I'm telling you, that split divided separatism and revivalism. It hurt us. It's sort of what happened back when the NAE split. And I'll say a, a word about that. And this really bothered me. This was not good. This was not what I had seen in the 60s. This was not that early independent movement that had storefront churches and didn't matter how great they looked. They believed God and churches were being started all over America. And I, you know, I, I just, I said, I, I don't know. I, I talked to Dad about it. You notice a number of us are preacher's sons here. Thank God for godly dads. Amen. You know, it's a, it's a wonderful thing. And then God did something for me, two things. I was part of a school camp that I saw a mighty move of God. And Jesus showed up, changed my life. I was a speaker. I didn't deserve to see God do it. God did it. And then God touched my son with a massive brain tumor. He had given no hope to live. No one at that time or since that time has lived. But God got a hold of my heart and he said, try me. I am able to do miracles. This faithless Christianity that you're reacting to is not real Christianity. Now, there's a lot of faith-filled Christianity going on at that time. Please understand. But I'm talking about my perspective. And um, he healed him. I began to rise up in my spirit. It's not personalities or a movement. I'm a fundamentalist because I I am a New Testament Christian. And I began to become just unapologetic. I began to get it while my dad stuck with it. And it just stirred me to think of what God could do. And I began to cry out, Lord, we're not praying. We're not seeking God. Our movement's empty, but it's right. It is right. And there's pockets happening. And, Lord, make me faithful. I'm so thankful. And I began to, I made a decision to my soul. Satan controls the world. And our culture is controlled by the world. But my Savior... Has overcome principalities and powers, might and dominion. And I don't have to trust culture and try to woo culture. I've got to be right with God. I've got to have a church that mirrors what this what the New Testament teaches about Bible Christianity. And God saved my life, frankly, at that point. I have to tell you that. So why did these movements end so quickly? I've already given you some hints. We didn't stop humanism. We're sick today. We're almost desynthesized. Transgenderism? When I was 30, I would have thought that was something out of a science fiction, moral, perverse novel. I would never have dreamed that that could have happened. And so the question is, are we repeating the same mistakes today? And you know, you could say this about every generation. This is not uh, picking on this generation. It was my generation, too. Believe me, our generation, I think the young men of this day have a deeper intensity to see God work than my generation that we were pretty fat and sassy. Uh, as far as, man, I'm telling you, America, the Reagan years, and we were building churches, and we had the ten biggest churches in, in America, you know. So, uh, but I think, young men, you need to look very strongly, and all of us old guys, Uh, at this. So I'm just going to give you my observations. One of the things was denominational pressure. We we have a hard time seeing this because we don't have the denominations quote-unquote today. The first decade of mighty blessing was ended by World War I and denominational compromise. I'm telling you the pressure of denominations on people are beyond what we fully understand. My dad was just a boy. They were in First Baptist Church of Miami, Florida. and the pastor came up to my grandmother and she or she went to see him and she was concerned about some of the doctrines of the church and he patted her on the head very condescendingly and said, "Oma, uh, don't you know Jesus was the son of a German soldier in Mary. My dad remembers that. And so she left the high-status church and went to River View Baptist Church in Miami, Florida. Now, that's where fundamentalism started with my grandmother. Thank God for her, you know. And, uh, but then the Northern Baptist Convention, like I said, every fundamentalist in the north was, went to this progressive denomination. Every fundamentalist in the South was in the Southern Baptist with people like that. No wonder we had problems. Listen, I would rather have been in the 70s than in that early period of time. That was a really, frankly, a very difficult time in the history of fundamentalism. And so the, the denominations exercise strong influence over their members because any group provides acceptance, status and a sense of belonging the late 1940s my dad was the first fundamentalist Baptist to leave the Southern Baptist Convention in Florida and he wrote I remember 26 years ago when I faced leaving the denomination of my parents and felt the pull of, of my heart and relatives and friends all the arguments that were used about my future I thought that I was destined to be obscure, tucked away, starving to death for life. But I know that when I made that decision with just a boy, it made me. I found out where God was. I found out that his promises were true. I became aware of the reality of faith, and so did all my people who were with me at the time. Since that first coming out, we have had to come out a number of different things. Taking a stand does something for us. So our maturity is proven by our strength. Our strength helps others. They lean upon us. Very interesting. Yeah. I didn't find out until after my dad died, and it hurt him so badly. The pastor of the, the next pastor of the First Baptist Church was Leroy Angel, the moderator of the Florida Baptist Convention. He hired a prostitute to call my dad to ask for counsel, and they had a photographer that was ready to take pictures of him meeting with her. A deacon happened to be involved with the SBC at that point and was able to warn him and saved, saved his life and ministry. That's how wicked the denominational pressure was. It really hurt him uh, at that time. The fundamental fellowship in the Northern Baptist Convention was a large group of pastors who just wouldn't leave the convention, now, there was a separatist movement in the 20s. That's the GARB. And I thank God for Ketchum, Brother Ketchum, Van uh, Osdal, others of that movement. They were true separatists. I tell you, they had one problem. Board-run churches just don't work real well. I mean, if you're a GARB background, please, uh, uh, please forgive me. No, don't forgive me. That, they don't work real well. Okay. <laughs> now, you need accountability, Dictator-run churches are just as bad on the other side, okay? Uh, And that's been a real bane in the last several decades. But, um, so I thank the Lord uh, for them. But the leading churches that had the influence in the north, such as W.B. Riley and a number of those kinds of pastors, they stayed in the convention. They would meet a couple days ahead of time, there was the Baptist Union, which became the JRB. Then there was the Fundamentalist Fellowship. And they would meet, and they had a separate meeting, but wanted to retain a veneer of sophistication and respectability that had never characterized that regular Baptist movement. And it's so interesting, many feared to, seemed to fear the rebuke or contempt of their fellow pastors. Northern Baptists had a long and prestigious history. To belong to the convention was to be somebody. The separatists were widely perceived as cranks and yokels. (laughs) Uh, That's true. Um, And there are some. Uh, The sophistication and prestige of the convention was enough to hold some pastors in place. In the early 1960s, the, the CBA was the group that was formed finally when the Fundamentalist Fellowship couldn't take it any longer. But what they did was they kept one foot in the Northern Baptist and then started the conservative Baptist. And of course, New evangelicalism and that whole uh, integration philosophy was really taking hold. Billy Graham was powerful. There's a lot of dynamics. And so by the end of the 1950s it was obvious splits were going to have to take place. And again, I got to be in on that. We would go from Durango, Colorado up to Denver. My dad was one of the leaders of it. And I remember, whoa, you know, people talk, you know, hate to say it, New evangelicals, and I hate to use that term now because there's so many different facets, but those that are compromising can seem so sweet until you cross them. And uh, I remember the head of the Colorado Association coming up. he was a little bitty short guy and just blasting my dad. I don't remember what he was saying. all I knew was, give it to him, Dad, you know I wasn't very spiritual in that whole, uh, that whole deal. But I was really excited. He had two cowboy deacons. that were about six foot four, each one of them. And they come up there, bull legged, you know, and they pick up this little guy, and his feet is going like this. They said, all right, pastor, which, which window do you want him to be thrown out of, you know? <laughs> My dad didn't let him do it. I was so disappointed. I remember thinking, this is the per- perfect opportunity. So, but I'm telling you, it wasn't easy to leave those groups. And, uh, Now let me say this, 1960s through the 80s, the independent Baptist movement was around alma maters. They were around different organizations. And frankly, the pressure was almost as great as a denomination. And I think some of the younger men today are still reacting to that. Now let me tell you, it's really not in existence that much to, unless you make it part, unless you're trying to cater to somebody. I really think the leaders of the different movements are doing their best to not do that. I think we're in one of the best places for the independent movement to see a move of God. So that, that's a blessing. But it was a reality. And uh, I remember getting a letter from my alma mater, and we'll leave it right there, um, when I preached at a place that I shouldn't have preached. And uh, so I I knew what that was like. And uh, I won't go into those details, except I preached in a very large auditorium in Chattanooga, Tennessee. But anyway, (laughs) all right. (laughs) 24 years of age, and uh, it was really a, but anyway. um, Now, what about now? I'm just gonna throw this out, gentlemen, let you just think it through. I think we have the same kind of pressure, not from organizations, but I think we have it from technology. The peer pressure, the communication and technology on this generation's preachers may have much the same effect that denominations and associations had. I I really uh, commend Tony Rinke's book. Many of you have probably read it, uh, 12 Ways Your Phone Is Changing You. He says the philosophical maximum Maxim, excuse me, I think, therefore I am, has been replaced with the digital motto, I connect, therefore I am, leading to the status desire, I am liked, therefore I am. (laughs) And that is good. I give an example from Tim Chalice, uh, where he talks about the fact that the New Calvinism, which was one of the 10 leading movements in 2009 by Time Magazine, He says, the movement relied heavily on Christian blogs and social media, one that would not have happened without them. If that's in 2009, how much power does that have in 2018? That is the new, may I say, denominational pressure. Now listen, guys that do it, many of you do, that's not many times your intention. It is the followers that bear the responsibility to not be pressured humanly, but get back to the Lord Jesus and what is right. So I just commend that to you. The engagement of culture at the price of biblical holiness. Some of these I could go quickly over because I've already talked about them. Did you know that there was unanimity among fundamentalists about separation from the world in 1900? Across the board. Everybody. Why? Because there have been revival after revival after revival. May I make this statement? Revival never causes people to give the world the benefit of the doubt. Let me tell you, when you see the presence of God, and you are in a place where you can't even sit, you've got to get on your face, and I've been in several of those times, I'm telling you, you're not thinking about how close to the world can I get. When you see the King of Kings high and lifted up, when the and you understand that the seraphim are crying out holy 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 my friend your desire is to be as much uh freed from the flesh and and to be in full unity with your god you do not want to be part of satan's world i'm telling you every time revival comes holiness comes back into vogue because what's it all about bring us back to the life of christ bring us back it isn't about little particulars about the world it's about jesus my dad used to say all the time, we don't separate from, we separate to. And when you separate to, you can't help but separate from. And, um, and I tell you, I, I have been in some times where the power of God has come, three, four, five-hour prayer meetings, and I'm telling you, you realize all oh, the little even motives of your life that aren't right. Now, folks, we need revival. Did you know in the 1976 interview, Billy Graham's sister said, when he got saved and God began to work in his life, he no longer wanted to go to the movies. <laughs> That's really interesting, back in the 1930s. By the way, read John O'Reilly's book on the movies back in the 1930s. Whoa, those are the goodies, you know. And did you know that in the 1940s, leading up to the great revivals, Billy Graham preached on holiness like any independent Baptist preacher would preach on it. You ought to read the messages. Why do you think there was revival? Why did he lose it? He moderated his message, even to the point of not talking about hell. It's amazing. Once you give up some truth, you're going to start giving up a lot of truth. And so, you know, the battle, the fundamentalists were with the liberals in both big denominations and they began to feel out of step with the culture, and so they were wide open to Ockengay with New Evangelicalism. See, Ockengay was part of the split under Machen, out, coming out of Princeton after two years. He went to Westminster and graduated from there, but he didn't like the price he had to pay. And he thought for sure there was a better way. But if you were to go to Ockengay's church in 1950, it's, it was far more conservative than any church represented in this room today you would be shocked as I have read about his church at that time. So initially, this was not an issue, but as they got more into human dependence, and um, in David, David Wells' quote is talking about the New Evangelical, uh, they specialize in sidestepping controversy, he didn't say that, um, and about contextualization, but here's what he said, what is required is not merely a practical application of biblical doctrine, but a translation of that doctrine into conceptuality that meshes with the reality of our social structures and the patterns of life dominant in contemporary life. Now, I've got to throw this in here. Notice Millard Erickson, theologian, New Evangelical. In his book, The New Evangelical Theology, I want you to look closely. The New Evangelicals believe that the grace of God is operative in cultural expression. That it restrains sin in its worst manifestations and may even give expression to God's truth. It is therefore at least potentially a legitimate field of interest for the believer. Now obviously there are neutral areas of culture, but that's not what he's talking about. You know where that comes out of? Reformed theology. Kingdom now. Bringing in the kingdom. We There's good that God is doing in culture. A good example of that would be World Magazine as they critique movies and music that are obviously things that Christians should not even think about, and yet they're trying to find good in those things. And so, um, reformed theology became the banner of New Evangelicalism, it became the banner of young fundamentalists in the 1990s, and it is more and more a temptation for young fundamentalists all across the board because of its embracing of a world-changing mentality that engages the world in a way that I think gets into danger zones. And then, after the division with many revivalists in the last half of the century, uh, that's the split of the NAE, many revivalists began to compromise. And biblical holiness was then maintained by men that were trying to be separatists By a dependence on man dependence rather than the transforming work of the grace of God. Folks, I don't earn a thing by by living a separate life. But when the Holy Spirit changes me, I have a renewing of my mind. And I have a love for the things of God. It's the Spirit of God that transforms us. So today we're having, uh, again, the same discussion. There's an increasing sense that the culture is not like it. Folks, it's not like us, okay? It's neo-pagan and it's post-Christian. It is not like us. It's like the Roman empires. It's, it's got Greek philosophy. And we've got to start with the word of God and, and realize this is the same thing. And yet, there is such a pressure to contextualize Uh, to try to reach and have acceptability with this culture I want to tell you we need to be sharp we need to be able to engage we need to understand the culture we need to not be anything that's that's unnecessarily separate from the culture but I'm telling you without God stepping in and saving people and without God transforming them we're not going to see the culture affected we need revival and we're so worried about preferences my friends the Word of God will make it very clear the heart that we ought to have. I'll let you read about hipster Christianity. It's amazing how they critique themselves that it's not gonna meet the need. And the ultimate is what Moeller talks about with the Revoice Conference, which is, of course, you've heard about the LBGBTQ uh, um, and and Christianity. And he says that it was an attempt to build a halfway house between LGBTQ culture, and evangelical Christianity, there's no halfway house. Monroe Parker, a great man of God, said back in 1985 to me, the fundamentalism of the 80s is to the left of the new evangelicalism of the 50s. Well, I'm going to just touch now for sake of time, I'll finish up here. biblical cooperation, as I've already said, the fundamentalists for the most part stayed in the conventions, and that The influence of the conventions brought on the New Evangelical philosophy. When my dad became an independent, he experienced revival. His church got up close to 1,000 in the early 1950s, unheard of. Lee Robertson, every time he would see me, said, that was revival. He was there. He said, that's the greatest move of God I've ever seen. It came because my dad uh, was willing to say, no, I've got to be pure in what I believe and with my associations. And uh, the fundamentalists, uh, they began to give it their undeviating support to the convention program. And then, of course, as I've already talked about, you had Ockingay and Carl F. H. Henry. They went beyond dispensationalism to a more embracing reform thinking that uh, would cause them to engage mainstream scholarship and liberal uh, uh, theology and so forth. And uh, it's very interesting. You ought to read there Graham's Defense of Himself 1956, the New York City campaign, Nell's foray, a flaming liberal. You have a picture of him sitting right behind Billy Graham on the platform. My friends, that's why we lost God's power. God says we're not to have anything to do with those that deny the deity of Jesus Christ. And so today, many are influenced, again, by conservative evangelical networks that are moderately ecumenical, contemporary in philosophy, and often Calvinistic, reformed. And it's a reality. I know the world that uh, I was in back in the 90s, there was a great pull to T4G, Gospel Coalition, all of those things. And thank God for the good men. I spent an entire day, actually an entire week, with John MacArthur. He's the real deal, but there's issues there. And I thank God for him. And, uh, but I'm, I'm telling you, what you believe makes a difference. And you've got to be very discerning. And so that same pull that there was in previous times for cooperation uh, is a real draw. And I tell you, the Southern Baptist Convention is a draw today. My friends, can I just, as an old-timer, warn you? It hasn't changed, the state associations haven't changed, and now the National Association is about to leave what happened in 1979, make no mistake about it, the uh, uh, election of J.D. Greer, a reformed theologian and a social justice leader is going to dramatically change the national. If that's something that appeals to you, then may I kindly say that's not fundamentalism. That's what even the most moderate fundamentalists have agreed about over the years the danger of that kind of perspective and you've got men like andy stanley talking about church unity is more important than theological correctness now he came back after i wrote this and tried to qualify that so i've got to give him uh, that but and then jd greer who wants a new culture and new posture at the southern baptist convention Let, let me just say folks number one you just need the lord And you need to be with guys that really believe like you do. We don't have to belong to something just to have to belong to something. The need for acceptance, camaraderie, and approval is always a temptation. Well, intellectual and academic exaltation, that has always been a problem. There's a lot of, this is a word-centered, expositional generation. I think so, I appreciate. Boy, I'm telling you, with the tools you had, I would have thought I'd died and gone to heaven with Logos and other things, you know? Uh, and I appreciate all the carefulness, but did you know you can have soulish intellectualism, not spiritual illumination? I've been there on both sides of that equation. And certainly, the mark of evangelicalism was that. That was a problem in the, in the, in the first part of the century and uh and so i'll let you read through that let me just say social gospel and social justice it's a big problem today most of the contemporary churches are toying with the idea and many are substituting evangelism with social justice emphasis that is absolutely out there and um this is nothing but the old social gospel that the liberals tried to fool the fundamentalists with missions and all of that. It's no different. You ought to study study up on that. And the fundamentalists knew that. They were concerned about it back then. See, the liberals, instead of believing in revival transformational power, emphasized social uh, justice. And the fundamentalists did, did uh, battle that. But Carl F.H. Henry, with his book, The Uneasy Conscience of a Modern Fundamentalist, Really brought down fundamentalism of that uh, generation with that book, and uh, again, reform theology was part of that. My dad heard him at Trinity Evangelical Seminary a few years ago, as he denounced what he had taught himself and that it had led to a, in, um, a the uh, the inerrancy issue, a lack of belief on hell, and he proved the day that he had ever emphasized it as much as he had. He heard he heard him. And guess where he gave a lot of his uh, monies when he died? Maranatha Baptist Bible College back in that day. Why? He, he made a statement. So we need to learn, but it is really there. Greer, of course, is big. John MacArthur, you can see the quote there just a couple of weeks ago. He said, this is the greatest danger that has faced evangelicalism, and I agree with him. Now, a point, and I'm going to have to be done, evangelism without genuine revival power That's what happened to Billy Graham. That's what happened to the late 70s in fundamentalism. Folks, it's fabulous when people get saved, but there's more to church development than that. There has got to be a loyalty to the word of God, and we want our people to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And I'm telling you, our culture, it takes discipleship, it takes prayer, it takes intensity, and we need a move of God so our people can be rescued from this culture. They've got broken lives and hurts. They praise the Lord for them to be saved. And I'm telling you, churches have got to be far more than evangelistic missions. They have got to be transformational centers of the body of Christ. And that really came out of that whole thing, and you can read through there and, uh, and see that. And then a reaction to the revival I mentioned about John R. Rice and Bob Jones, uh, a letter that uh, Dr. Rice wrote to Jones. You did not agree with my position that there is no way to know when the end of the age approaches. And as you plainly said, you do not believe that a great area-wide revivals are possible now in the same sense that they were in other days because you think we're approaching the end of the age. We have had a fatalistic, and I'm again very thankful for my background there, but I'm just telling you, that mentality has heard us there's been an overreaction to the charismatic uh, heresy and I'm well, boy we have to but I you know the holy spirit's real yeah. Yeah. he is a person yeah, is. he indwells you he will commune with you he will empower you our churches have all that they need with him bringing the head of the church into reality he can bring the presence of god into our assemblies pure objection uh, obje- objectivism is one step from liberalism, my dad used to say, liberalism denies the supernatural, pure objectivism minimizes the supernatural. You know, God stills doing miracles. God still answers prayer. God can do it. And then the nomination of Reformed Theology and Christian Education, Homeschool Education, think that one through. That has been a breeding ground. And I could spend an hour on that one. So today we have a reaction to the revival theology, man-dependent separation and service, compromise that grieves the Holy Spirit. And that's why I think a lot of, especially younger men, where do I go, what do I do? So I just tell you, we need to overcome these attacks. Believe God for revival power today. Trust in God's grace to transform people. Believe God doesn't need the world's methods to accomplish his work. Understand that personal victory and holiness is essential. Revive us again. And let me just end with this. We've got to be men of prayer. We've got to have churches of prayer. We've got to know our God. Lord, help us. Thank you for the good attention of these folks. And Lord, would what I say be taken properly, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: We hope this episode has been helpful to you and that you'll subscribe to our podcast. You can connect with Standing Together on Twitter and Facebook, where we hope you will take a moment to share this podcast with your friends and followers. And remember, we'd love to see you at the next Standing Together Ministry Summit on April 1st and 2nd in Murfreesboro, Tennessee. For more information, visit us at stsummit.com. That's stsummit.com. Thanks again for listening.